I went from you know, smoking pot and stuff and just drinking a lot of alcohol to speed. And then when I started studying after high school, um, it didn't take long for me to jump onto heroin. There is life after addiction, no matter what the addiction is. Like the, the void will fill itself somehow naturally. Welcome to episode 31 of Toy Division. This episode is the first in a series in relation to addiction. Addictions of many types in relation to drugs, alcohol, whatever, is very pervasive in the graffiti community and is a subject that requires discussion. So this is a conversation with someone who's in recovery or has been for a fair few years. So please subscribe, give us a five-star review in iTunes, Share this podcast with your friends, acquaintances, and your mates. And um, let's get more people listening to this and have something positive happening. Please check us out on Instagram at toydivision underscore podcast. Anyway, enough of this shite. Please enjoy. Okay, so we're now recording. So this is another Toy Division. I'm not going to say which episode it is because that seems to be a recurring theme where I can't remember. Um, so thanks very much for doing this. And you just said you've just been for a long run. Yes. How many hours did you say it was? Oh, it was five and a half hours. Wow. Fair play to you. That's dedicated. So yeah, it was down here. Yeah. You were going to say um, where, yeah. where it was? Yeah, it was down here um, near Kurungai National Park. Nice. Good scenery, I guess. Oh, it was amazing. Um, down near Bobbing Head and along the water there and little technical trails. So for um, people that may be in a different country or different part of the world, that's the the Sydney sort of area. That's right, Sydney, Australia. You say that, but that, does that sound about accurate-ish? Yeah, totally. It's in, um, it's in like a nice area of Sydney. It's like in the northern sort of suburbs near St. Ives and there's like a yacht marina down there and there's all beautiful lush um, trail running um, fire trails and single track trails down there. Um, nice. Pretty starting part of Sydney. Lovely. Okay, well that's a positive start to the day. So we're going to be now talking about not necessarily as positive pursuits, but you've kindly said that you'd be interested in going through some of this stuff with me because I'm very aware that the graffiti community and society in general, you know, addiction is something now which is kind of in the spotlight a little bit more, but often the, you know, the real stories about people's experiences of being an addict or recovering often are not really told. So let's just jump straight into these questions. So how would you describe your addiction? Well, from the very start, or...? Yeah, so I guess it would be, how would you describe, you know, when you, would, you know, you're in recovery now, so your yep. actual addiction, yeah, just start right at the beginning. So where did, where did it all start? Let's go right back to the beginning. Well, probably um, in, in my early teens, I'd, I'd say. Um, and I just started off with rec recreational drug use, like with probably the same with many other addicts. Um, and 
yeah, it was just it was a cool thing to do. Just use drugs socially on the weekends, and um, and then towards the end of high school, um, it for me it escalated pretty quickly. Like um, I went from you know, smoking pot and stuff and just drinking a lot of alcohol to speed, and then um, I, I started. When I started studying after high school, um, it didn't take long for me to jump onto heroin. Um, wow. So that was a, was, a, was a pretty quick escalation there. <laughs> wow. So it literally went from kind of a bit of weed, because uh, we're talking about drugs in Australia. So I guess it would have been a little bit of weed, probably some drinking as well. That's the common denominator, drinking of alcohol as well. And then it kind of just went into hyperdrive, jumped to speed, and then into heroin. Pretty much, pretty much. At that time, it was just like around year two, just after year 2000 when the Olympics had started. And um, a lot of the, there was a, lot, there was a big opium problem in Sydney, like a big heroin problem. And that was just finishing up at the time. Um, so I jumped on the tail end of the the, the heron <laughs> flooded the, that flooded Sydney at that time, and because so many people were doing it, it just felt normal. Like the stigma around it for me, I I thought it was a cool thing to do. Like I didn't look at the, the bad side of it. I chose to look at the positive sides of it. Where, and that's pretty much just addiction, you know, doing its tricks in my head. I'd imagine. <laughs> um, so you were saying that it was something which had become quite normal. Would you say that that was within your group of friends or just in general at that period of time, there were so many people who were, you know, using something like heroin that it just almost became just everyone was doing it? Well, for me, I like, I think normal people wouldn't say it that way. But for me at that time in my life, the movies that were coming out had um, heavy drugs, narcotics in them at the time. Um, the the opium problem we had in Sydney was all, all throughout newspapers, it was in the news. Um, my circle of friends was definitely using it. And I, at first I thought, um, for a little bit I thought it was uncool, you know, because I could see what I was doing to my friends. but. So was the, and I guess what I'm trying to dig a little bit deeper really, was it that in the graffiti scene, you know? Um, it was definitely. Um, so I, I grew up in the kind of inner west of Sydney in an area around Strathfield. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the graffiti writers that I idolized at that time were using heroin. Um, and we're pretty much criminals, you know. Um, and I thought it was cool, you know. They did good graffiti, um, and I thought doing crime was good at that time in my life. Um, and I was attracted to it. I think there was something in my head that shifted, and that it was it was like an underbelly of what was going on in my life. And I, I didn't realise that my mind was slowly heading direction. It just. It just happened unknowingly, like I was blindsided by the whole, I don't know, like. 
it's an interesting one definitely for me because you know i'm a recovering addict definitely still recovering not recovered um yeah. and the social norms the part of just it's just you know what your friends are doing and it sounds so cheesy when i say it. it's like what your friends are doing and they're like a bad influence but like when it's just the norm and when it's kind of something which you see you know um you know committing crime it just for me it became this amazingly cool thing to do to commit crime i don't know i can't remember really why but then on top of that graffiti was almost just like the catalyst because then I was hanging around with other people and I'd never even considered shoplifting in my whole life. And then before you know it, I was hanging around with people that were shoplifting and selling drugs and everything. And it was almost like, oh, wow, this is cool. These people are cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to be part of this. Um, yeah. So do you think that graffiti, did you think the graffiti were you, I mean, were you writing at that point? Were you a graffiti writer at that earlier stage or is that something that came later on? Um, that was earlier on, like uh, writing graffiti was from when I was like 13, 14, really, really young. And maybe when I got to nine, ten years old, that's when I started using hip, like the hard drugs. Okay, so um, you were already into painting and graph and that type of stuff so you're already part of the graffiti culture so the reason why i ask is do you think yeah. graffiti and your addiction kind of fueled each other well i think at the very start maybe in the first year or two definitely definitely but then what happened was like that was all intertwined like painting using drugs at the same time at parties and um yeah, and we'll go clubbing and, you know, some people will be, you know, popping X's and I'll be using heroin in the bathroom in the cross. And I thought that was cool. Like, and, um, but then what happened, there was a big shift where heroin took over everything. Like my creativity died. Yeah. My drive to paint graffiti died. And, in, and I came, I kind of fell off the graffiti radar for a couple of years um to chase drugs yeah um, it's such a there's such a common thing isn't it it's like the graf the, the, the graffiti is something which is such an important part of our lives and then before yeah. you know it it's like you don't have time or it's like getting drugs is way more important i think i went through a probably 10 years i was still dabbling with painting doing some tags couple of pieces here and there but I look back and I think oh, I just did fuck all really because I just didn't have the mental capacity I still called myself a writer but I was just fucking smashed all the time like and it was for me it wasn't like it wasn't a specific substance it was just I was just doing everything I could get my fucking hands on yeah totally totally I totally get that um like I'd, I'd do a piece maybe once every couple of months mm -hmm. and um, it would be messy, man. Like I wouldn't, um, it wouldn't be, it was just no effort, you know, like, um, and 
And I was, st- I was still hanging around graffiti writers, but I wasn't actively like painting. Like I was just doing like petty crime and, and I was doing, I think I was doing straight tagging a lot, you know, um, at that time, like not so much pieces cause I was, I was more into piecing. Um, and you know, I just didn't have the creative urge to do that. Um, and I guess the whole thing about being, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, committing small crimes, were you doing things like, you know, shoplifting, AKA racking to kind of fund your habit? Was that how you were managing to stay? Cause again, drugs are not cheap. <laughs> and especially when you're an addict, I mean, were you, were you associating with people? Cause I always think that the graffiti culture is almost like this because everyone's into racking, well not everyone, but a lot of people are into racking and those petty crimes and that they can then fuel that. Was that something that you were doing to kind of keep your habit going? Oh, 100%. I'll be stealing a lot of spray paint from a lot of different shops and sometimes keeping it or selling it to buy drugs. And then I was stealing alcohol, like a lot of bottle shops. Like I'll be going from one bottle shop across Sydney to another bottle shop, to another bottle shop, to another bottle shop. Um, and just selling them, selling them, selling them. Sometimes I'd sell them to like maybe strip clubs in the cross, just go up there and just sell them to the bars, um, just to make money, you know? Um, and then, yeah, just it's selling prescription medicine, like going doctor shopping and, um, and just selling that on the street, maybe to other riders or, um, yeah, or, being actually very resourceful this is what i think you know a lot of this stuff is the general public would see this and be like oh my goodness me these bloody graffiti drug addicts what are they doing but the time and the effort that you were going through and that so many people go through to just make that money you know we're talking about going to different bottle shops finding a doctor's surgery where they'll prescription they'll they'll give you a prescription thing and then trying not to look too you know that doctor shopping is a very common thing isn't it and you know going to there's that whole underbelly and were you doing a lot of this stuff solo or did you have kind of a a group of acquaintances slash mates that you were kind of doing this with um mainly with my twin brother who also writes and um, had a very similar story to mine and but also a lot by myself because um Addiction eventually isolated me from everyone around me. Like at the front, at the start, in the first couple of years, it was all fun and games. But then, um, when it, when the addiction fully took over, it was pretty much me against the world. <laughs> it was game on, you know. Um, and I wouldn't want to associate with myself with people because I was too embarrassed. Like um, the where the, where drugs took me was that low that I didn't want to be seen, man. I just wanted to be a shadow on the street, you know? Like, and if I was painting, even people that I used to write, like guys that I write with, well, I write with them today, but back then, I wouldn't want to associate with people in my crew because I was using heroin. And, you know, at that time, not a lot of people in my crew don't use, didn't use narcotics, you know? Um, they're reasonably healthy writers, graffiti writers, and they're good graffiti writers, you know? And they kind of frowned, frowned upon people that used, you know, heroin and stuff, you know. Um, so I tried to distance myself even from mates because, um, 
yeah just um and the thing is is that you know when you look back in hindsight hindsight's a wonderful thing but at the time but it's fucking useless isn't it you know hindsight is great but at the at, in the period of time you know isolating yourself trying to keep yourself away trying to keep it secret trying to like not you know i was a serious drug addict for so many reasons and i just was i just became even even more lonely but then i was just filling that never-ending void with more and more drugs and more and more shame and more and more guilt and like what am i doing I've, and my family had like virtually disowned me and it was just you know that that's the thing which i'm trying to make these podcasts for is that seeing the person behind the addiction because society loves to tar everyone with the same brush anyone who's a drug addict unless it's the other end of that spectrum and it's the prescription because i've really noticed that now because of the prescription epidemic in say the us there's almost like oh well it's the pharmaceutical company's fault not the drug the dr not the user's fault i don't know that's way more complex than i'm making it out to be but trying to show yep. a face and a life and a person behind addiction because i think there's still so much stigma and misinformed information and judgment which can be done so can you think of like a lowest point where you just thought my god i need to change this i need to make this positive change because this is just this is getting me nowhere yeah definitely definitely um um when um i had a, i had a pretty bad run here in sydney and i was in emergency housing up near king's cross in the formula one hotel with my twin brother and um i was dropping all the time like overdosing and one new year's eve i decided to catch a train by myself to melbourne and start fresh and i thought i'll get clean and you know and i'll be fine and i went down there <clears throat> And I did all right for like two weeks and I took, um, I was on maintenance then, which was like uh, methadone or buprenorphine. It's like uh, replacement therapy drugs for heroin. And um, yeah, so I thought I'd wean myself off and I was just staying in like motels and hotels for about a couple of months. And the money ran out, you know, that I, my parents kind of funded me or, you know, and I went into like a student accommodation down there and I joined the clinic, I went back on maintenance, like um, mate, uh, substitute for heroin medication. And um, yeah, I remember one night, I was, I was ODing a lot. I was getting ripped off. Um, I was doing stupid crimes, man. And I overdosed in a bathroom once. I've overdosed heaps, but I overdosed in this bathroom once. And I, I think it was like at maybe one in the morning. And I got up, I pulled myself out of the bathroom at six in the morning. And I completely lost movement in my whole right arm. And I still had the fit hanging out of my arm. And I'm like, oh my God, and I pulled the fit out. Anyway, at that point, you know, to be honest, I didn't know that I had lost movement in my arm. <clears throat> and I was living with backpackers and they were having a party at the back of the house. And um, I was there and I started dancing and those people were recording, like, the party. And I wasn't aware of it. And I'm just, you know, doing my thing. I'm drinking, I'm smoking with my other hand, not knowing that I did not have any movement in this arm. So I must have been numb from head to toe. 
probably under the influence of a lot of drugs. And um, so when I came, I went to sleep and I woke up the next day and I realized, shit, my arm doesn't work. What happened, you know? And when did it happen? And someone showed me a video of me and my arm wasn't working. Anyway, I went to the emergency at the hospital and they said that um, I fell asleep on my arm and I've stopped circulation. I've stopped circulation with the blood and I, I damaged the nerve. So they, they said it could take months for recovery. So I had like a floppy arm. So what they've done, they put it in a cast and I was very malnutritioned at this stage, you know, and within two weeks of being in the cast and doing physio, I started getting these little blisters on the right side of my body and I went back to emergency and they said it was shingles and shingles is a type of um, like chicken pox, but a lot worse that, yeah. that comes from your nerves. Um, I've had shingles. It's fucking horrible. Oh, you have? Yeah. Right. That and that. And check, check that out. That was just when I was addicted to weed. So God knows what I was doing to my body then. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So you had this arm in a cast. You had the shingles. That, you know. So your body is basically at a point where your body and obviously your mind, because the mind and the body is incredibly encapsulated and part of the same thing but your body is basically just going nah nah pretty much it gave up like that shingle spread all over my back all over my chest and down my arm holy shit wow okay that's so pretty much the whole right side of my body with like blood blisters and burning oh man and in the hospital, they said, oh, well, don't worry, we'll put you on some pain meds to help relieve the pain. And because I was on opiate, um, on the meth, on the bup medication, they couldn't, and I told them, look, I'm on bup, and they said, sorry, we can't give you any pain meds. So I just had to wait it out, man. I just had to go home and increase my dose and... Yeah, and that was the most excruciating pain I've ever felt in my life, more than hanging out from heroin. Um, I, I, I've done lots of extra training for my job and for my own personal development about what chronic, you know, chronic persistent pain. And one of the things which, um, just as you said it, it just popped into my mind that essentially people that use um, strong painkillers, and we're not talking codeine here, we're talking opiates basically, a lot of the research suggests that their actual levels of pain go up. It's just, it's almost like a reverse. You think, well, hang on a sec. If you're taking pain meds, but you then become, because chronic pain, chronic persistent pain is a very, very complex collection of biological, psychological, and social things. And then you get given a load of meds and it just doesn't actually do much with the pain and can make it worse and then create that addiction spiral. So that sounds bloody horrible and so painful. And I guess you probably weren't feeling the most positive about things in general to then have that physical manifestation of that type of stuff must have been flipping horrendous. Um, at that point, um, that was enough was enough. Like I didn't want to, I didn't, I moved down to Melbourne to, because I didn't know anyone down there. So I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell any of my friends. I was down there pretty much on my own and I kept all this to myself. 
like and that was the most painful thing man um and that's where I made the decision and look I thought look if I don't make if I don't change something now I will die I will die um and it was only inevitable with only time a matter of time why what I was I wasn't eating I was just um yeah it was just um, so how did you actually begin that road to you know recovery how did how did you even start it because i think this is the other reason why i want to mention this on the podcast is so many people will be in a similar situation no matter what drug or addiction it is and it's a fucking lonely experience it's a lonely existence and often it can feel like you're so alone and you've tried yep. this you know i've me I, I went to narcotics anonymous i went alcoholics anonymous i went to flipping every group therapy and I just kept failing over and over again and it just made me and I just kept slipping back into my addiction over and over again and almost playing like a game of whack-a-mole like I'd give one thing up <laughs> and then I you know I, I quit weed when I was quit weed but I quit smoking weed chronically every day I was like 18 19 and then I developed a flipping ketamine addiction. Then I developed a cocaine addiction. And then I developed a benzodiazepine addiction. Then I became a fucking alcoholic. All these addictions going round and round and round. And the reason why I want to kind of talk about this stuff is to just remind people that it's never too late to give it another go. Like you, there can be change. And sometimes it takes multiple attempts because it can be fucking hard work. So. How did you begin your road to recovery? Um, like you said, it did take multiple attempts. Um, prior to me being in Melbourne, I did try like detoxes in Sydney um, and like different sorts of um, like counselling and all that sort of. I, I tried various methods and I thought, and I, I thought at that time that I was too good to do rehab, to commit, you know, six months or a year to a rehab of my life. I thought that I was too special and, you know, <laughs> I was too good for that. But I think when, when the addiction put me on my ass, I had no choice. Um, so I pretty much flew back to Sydney and, um, my twin brother it just he'd done heaps of rehabs before like for a year for six months for a year and every time he came out he kept using you know and i'm like Fuck. so this last rehab that he did um i will say the name it's called who's and um they're in roselle in callum park and they specialize in one of the only rehabs in australia it was at the time that specialized in reducing people of um, methadone and buprenorphine and um, so I put my name on the waiting list and I waited, you know, and, um, and that was, this was a really humble experience for me, you know, experience for me because um, like I'd never lived with any other person other than, you know, my brother, you know, like I've never lived in a share house. Oh, I lived in a share house, but I was by myself and I had my own room. Um, but. When I went into this rehab on my first day, I dropped my bags and they showed me more rooms. Like maybe more than 50% of the guys in there were from prison, you know, um, and some of them had done 20 years. Some of them have done all sorts of whack stuff, you know, and, um, and there was rooms of like 10 people, you know, and you side by side in there and I'm like, what the fuck? 
But um, and I said to myself, look, I'm going to give this 100%. I'm going I'm to sit this for 12 months. If I don't like it at the end of the 12 months, I'll start using again. But I'm not going to fucking go out there and die. And um, and then I realised, I, after like a couple of weeks, I realised that we're all in there for the same, me and every other person, every other men in that rehab, we're there for the same reason to stop using drugs, you know, and that's one thing we had in common. Um, And that was enough to build a bond um, with the other people in there to get through it, you know. Um, That's powerful, isn't it? That, again, we're talking about the loneliness of addiction because I don't know if you've ever heard of someone called Johan Hari. He's an English, things like half English, half Swedish or something, but anyway, he has done lots of work about the truth behind addiction and stuff like that. I went and saw him at the Opera House. He had a whole presentation about him going around the world and just, you know, making the war on drugs is just a total failure and it distances. But one of the things which he really came out with, and if people are listening to this, check out on YouTube. I think it's like the opposite of addiction is connection. And he goes so much into the fact that for various reasons, people that become addicts are kind of pushed out from society for so many different reasons and it becomes such a lonely existence and what and what you're saying is is that you've you found that you know you all have that common bond and that feeling of belonging and not feeling so lonely which is a lot of what the rehabilitation success is now accredited to it's you know the treatment might be great but that connection and that's why it can take multiple times because it needs to be that that individualized ideal kind of combination of stuff. So um, do you think that graffiti, so going back to the good old graffiti, do you think that graffiti has been something that has been like a positive replacement to your addiction? Now, yes, it was, I think it's been very important for the first, say six months of my recovery when I was, when I did all the hard work and looked at myself and got all that shit out of the way, um, when I did start, I was very creative in rehab. I, I sketched a lot. Like, I think it was, it, I, I like you said, I think it was very important for my recovery, creativity. Um, because I was sketching pretty much every day in rehab. Um, once I, after like yeah three to six months clean, I started sketching every day, and but I was careful to go out and start painting like legals again, which only because I was in this bubble of the rehab that I had a fear of the outside world for a little bit, um, and I did my toes slowly, so I'd only paint with other people that were in recovery, um, and I, so I wouldn't say sh- yeah. On that note, was there? people that you met during recovery that were writers? Oh, totally. Really good writers. Really uh, good writers. Interesting. Um, yeah, some old school writers from Sydney, some, um, one really good friend of mine from Byron Bay. He's got a lot of time up. Um, he would come down to, um, to Sydney every now and then and, you know, do the recovery thing, like coffees and stuff with other people in recovery, and that's how I met him. Um, 
So we would have a little day there with the other guys in recovery. And it was powerful. That was really powerful because I thought creativity only came from using drugs. Um, I never thought that I'd be able to be creative and not use drugs. And um, yeah, rocking walls with other people in recovery was gold, man. Like, we're having such a good time and painting really good, creative, like awesome pieces. And we're all clean. None of us were using drugs. that's that common feeling i you know i think i remember it when i even i remember thinking this really really long time ago i I was into like i was fully signed up to the four elements of hip-hop i was just like trying to break dance trying to scratch dj mc and graffiti b-boy stuff and i still love that stuff now and i just think there's so much power to it but i remember being super stoned on you know smoking weed and i'd just like scratch on the turntable for like hours and then i worked out i could just record it on my tape deck so all the young people out there that's before four mp3s before cds you had something called tape so go google it (laughs) tape decks and i remember recording and at the time i had my headphones on and i was like beat juggling i was thinking this is the fucking this is just fucking amazing watch out invisible scratch pickles i'm I'm, watch out cuba i'm on the way and i listened to it the next day and it was fucking awful. And I, remember, and I remember thinking, maybe when I'm on drugs, I think I'm more creative. But I completely agree with you. The last few years since I've moved here, one of the reasons why I moved here was to really, really go into recovery properly. Nothing more recovering than moving to the other side of the world, supposedly. And yeah. I've become so much more productive with painting now. And I just think painting with other people is such a powerful thing to do, especially when you've got that common bond. You know, it's it's a very common thing where as blokes, you know, guys in a lot of societies, we're, we're taught not to talk about our emotions, not to show any form of weakness, especially in the graffiti world. I think things are changing a little bit, but you know, it's a very masculine macho sort of culture. And like saying that you feel low or you feel depressed or that you've got an addiction or you get anxious or you have fear. It's almost like, oh, this guy's fucking weak. But I guess, you know, getting together and chatting and painting and being creative together is just such a powerful thing. Oh, totally. Um, totally, totally. Like um, when I paint with guys like with in recovery, um, it's a mad bond and it's like you work with the team to paint a wall. You may see connecting, you're collaborating and you're talking and and on, on another note, like <clears throat> um, I've been writing with this graffiti crew that are up for since just before year two thousand, you know, and after about I was a year clean, I slowly started reconnecting with them. Do you know what I mean? Because I was a bit bit ashamed of, you know, going off my own little tangent and, you know, running amok. And um, it was, it was, it was really, really. I found it really surprising, you know, that um, with open arms, you know, when when I told him about how what I did to get clean, and the fact that I was, you know, drug free for a long period of time, um, that you know, would I'd go rock walls with the crew, and you know, they'd make an effort not to, you know, drink or use drugs if they were using drugs at the time when we were out, you know, and um, and ever since, like, <clears throat> in the last, 
I've been sober and clean for just over seven and a half years. And yeah, over, this, over the last six years, I've done really good pieces, you know, with the crew. And um, it's like a family, do you know what I mean? Now, like, I'll, now in recovery, I'll go through phases. Like, I, I might do a lot, a lot of graffiti for a couple of months um, by myself or with the crew, and then I'll stop and I'll put my energy into running or, you know, um, a little bit of travel or something. But um, I found that really good, you know. It's like we're, it's like a big family, you know, even today. Doesn't that sum it up? We were saying the opposite of addiction is connection. Oh, 100%. And this is what I'm, and you know what, to, you know, for the people that we paint with to understand where we're coming from and not, you know, when I was much younger, it was like, I'd be trying to go, I was trying to give up drugs and alcohol from a very young age because I could see it was taking me down a really dark path. But I guess it was just people didn't get it. And this was, oh, come on, just one drink. Oh, come on, just one line. Oh, come on, just one pill. At the time, it's all fun and games for them. When I'm the one sitting in hospital again and again and again and again. You know, I had so many hospital admissions just out of my mind. I had a brain injury. I sniffed a line of fentanyl and woke up like being taking an ambulance because I basically died like this and this sort of stuff where it's like that that belonging and that needing to feel a positive outcome and I saw it described really well I can't I think it was a documentary from Sydney from years ago and I watched it a while ago about people who were meth methamphetamine addicts and there was a guy in there had just come out of jail and he put it so well he was like you know, I want to give up the drugs. I'm probably bastardizing what he said. I want to give up the drugs, but like, how do you fill the void? How do you fill all that time and that effort and that purpose with something else? And it sounds like you've done that really well. You know, you're talking about sometimes it might be painting, doing graffiti stuff. Then you found obviously running brings that positive feeling. You know, going out for five-ish, five-ish hours on a Sunday, that's dedicated. That's getting that same sort of emotional and physical benefit that we often try and find in things like drugs and alcohol and other forms of addiction? Yeah, totally. Like, even like for my long runs, I'll prep it like I'm prepping when I was using drugs. I'm here mixing powders in my drinking, like soft flask bottles. Yeah. You know, like this powder you get from California called Tailwind. And, um, you know, it's the same. It's like you're there organising, you're packing it, and then you go out for your big run, you get a big rush of endorphins, and, you know, I come home, and when I finish running, you know, like 40, 50, or over, I've even done 100 k's in New Zealand in January this year, you know, in the race. Um, and when I cross the finish lines, man, like when I finished that race in New Zealand, I sat in my car, it felt like I was coming down off meth. That's how hard it was. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was free. Like, um, and I was scared. Like, I, I jumped in the car, my body just shut down. <clears throat> and it was the most amazing feeling. <laughs> and I was covered in goosebumps that I'd get, you know, when I was using drugs, but I was clean. Because um, I think that's, that's, that's for me, is what is my main pursuit for me, is to find things that bring me joy 
and to bring me that feeling of purpose. And graffiti is that. Graffiti encapsulates that for me. It's not always been fun and games. As I'm sure most writers know, it has its ups and has, it down, has its downs. But doing things, and again, fitness, that's another thing for me as well. But finding those things where just being pleased to exist. That's why I don't even write a gratitude journal each day. Someone told me that. I listen to a lot of podcasts. It's like all these proper like Silicon Valley biohackers and all this stuff. But you know what? Some of the advice is fucking great. It's like write down some stuff. Like I have a gratitude journal. I just write three things down in the morning that I'm grateful for. Like, and it's super basic. Like I have the ability to breathe. <laughs> Might be one of them. Or I have a place to live that is secure, safe. The third might be, I have food and water. And people think, well, that's, what's that? What's that going to do? But it's like feeling happy to even exist. And, you know, that doesn't make all of our troubles a lot easier. But I'm just pleased that I'm alive because I nearly died a number of times. And I'm just pleased that I'm still here to, you know, chat to you today and even see the sunrise every day. It's my, my granddad's very English. And um, <laughs> I say, how are you? So just pleased I didn't wake up in a box this morning, six feet under. And I was just like, <laughs> okay, that's, but I like that. So could you give, or do you have any t tips? It sounds really cheesy, doesn't it? You know, do you have any advice for someone? So say if someone's really deep in their addiction at the moment and they're like, maybe, I guess they have to be in that, stage of contemplation it's not just like they actually want to bring about a change because as we both know someone could be so deep into the addiction they're just like fuck that i'm fine i don't need to change and like trying to convince someone of that is that that can be that's a never-ending hamster wheel but if anyone is in a deep addiction right now of any type so we're not just talking about drugs not just alcohol it can be gambling it can be whatever an addiction is something that you're excessively doing that is yeah. affecting your quality of life. That is the basic definition of an addiction. So is there any advice that you could give to someone who's experiencing a really, you know, quality of life challenging addiction? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, because I didn't know for me that there was a way out until the very end. Like for the, t for the, the main block of a decade, it's 10 years that I was using drugs. Um, like, I wasn't given an example of the people that were in my similar situation that oh, I didn't see people get clean and stay clean, you know, and that didn't give me, not knowing that people could get clean and stay clean, deterred me from getting clean. Do you know what I mean? Because um, I didn't know it was possible. I thought literally I was going to be using drugs for the rest of my life. So the advice that I would say is that Whatever your problem is, whether it's like, like you said, anything like it could be porn, gambling, or I don't know, all sorts of weird addictions that we have today. Um, is Social media. <laughs> social media, Instagram, Facebook, bloody internet, um, gaming. Um, like, just, you can't, the, there is life after addiction, no matter what the addiction is. Like... The, the void will fill itself somehow naturally. Like you don't have to think, what am I going to do? Once you start 
reaching out. Well, the first thing I'd say is reach out and be honest to the people around you. Do you know what I mean? Tell them that you've got the problem. Tell them you've got a problem because I was too ashamed. Do you know what I mean? So that stopped people helping me, you know, but <clears throat> I think the, the most the most humbling thing you can do for yourself <clears throat> is to be honest and say, hey, guys, look, I'm really struggling. I'm isolating. Um, my, <clears throat> I'm not, you know, it's affecting my work. It's affecting my communication with my families. Um, it's making me feel depressed, anxious, sad. Um, you know, I think the most... The hardest thing, the most gangster thing you can do today with how the world is, is just be honest, man, you know. Um, don't lie to people because people can see straight through you. Like if I try and lie to people today, one, I feel like shit, you know, and um, and it makes me feel worse. So I reckon just be honest and reach out and try and get help and know that life does get better, you know, and it will take time. But um, it's definitely worth it. Like, your life will change. Like, when I got clean, someone told me, write down a couple of things that you would, you know, see yourself doing in, you know, five years' time. And that was, say, six years ago. If I read a list, like, <clears throat> I, I would have, you know, what, what I've done in the last, you know, seven and a half years would have blown that list out of the water. Like, I would have, like... I've I've valued my recovery when I came into recovery that low. What what more what my life would be like in five years' time? That um, yeah, life it does get better and it gets great and it gets all that energy that you put into your addiction. If you put that into your recovery, your life it's 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 hard to explain. Um, you just have to do it. You know. Um, I'm a hundred percent. Hundred percent. I can I can get hundred percent what you're saying because I look back on where I was ten years ago, and it's it's almost like I'm a different person. Not like literally a different person, but what I've managed to do with my life and turn it around. I just think if I told myself ten years ago, I'm like fucking. What drugs have you done? I want those. <laughs> So, yeah, and that's really good advice. You know, try and reach out, talk to somebody. It's okay to admit that you're not fucking smashing it because that's another problem that we can have is that we might turn to someone and they just fucking laugh at us. And then we're like, oh, no one fucking cares. But honestly, everyone listening to this, everyone that's out there, people do care and people will listen and you can recover and you can change your life for the positive. Both of us taking a deep breath. We're just like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's heavy stuff, you know, because it's it's touching on like the deep, the core, the the foundations of our life, like of life in general, Mm. you know, and it's it's very serious. It's life and death in a lot of cases. So, so yeah, you, um, yeah, reach out, get help, and and just make phone calls. Like when you need help and you need to go to rehab or 
you know, those counseling sessions or whatever it is, hassle them, hassle them like you would to your dealer. Bring them up every day at seven o'clock or nine o'clock and just go, hey, I want a bed, hey, I want a bed, hey, I want a bed, hey, I want a bed. They're like, no, sorry, we'll full ring up the next day, hey, I need a bed, hey, I'm going to die, I need a bed. You know, then you're going you're gonna to ring them up and they're all right, come in now, you know, I'll come in tomorrow. Um, you just got to hustle, you know, for for anything that you want, you need to, you need to like, you can't give up because life depends on it. Your, your quality of life will depend on it. And I know from experience because when the tough got, when, when it got hard for me, when my life was on the brink, I, I had to hustle to get into rehab, man. I had to call every day as much as I didn't want to and I put up every excuse. Oh, I'll call him tomorrow. I'll call him next week. He can't. You know, and if you let other people know what you're doing, they'll hold you accountable. They'll, they'll ring you up and say, oh, hey, hey, dude, did you call them today? You know, hey, dude, did you call them today? Hey, dude, did you call them today? Um, and, you know. Um, well, I suppose I the, other, the other bit of advice I might give just for people, if you've got a friend or a family member or someone you care about is going through addiction, not obviously say, oh, it's okay, don't worry, it's fine, but try not to be judgmental because that's a common thing, isn't it? People that we care about, we think we always need to like force them to recover and we need to scream and shout at them and distance them. I say, if you don't give up now, then I'm never speaking to you ever again. And that for that person, you know, I've got a family member at the moment who is very, very, very deep into an addiction you know, literally falling apart at the seams physically and mentally. And I just, I had this fleeting thought the other day and I just thought, why doesn't he just fucking stop? What's he doing? And I thought, hang on a sec, you're an ex-addict giving that judgmental thing of like, come on, sort your fucking self out. What are you doing? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, if you do know someone that's going through it, even if you can't understand why they're still sniffing coke every day or why they're still putting a needle in their arm or why they're still drinking themselves into oblivion try at least be there for them and listen to them and you know be that extra layer of like support that they might need i, I totally agree i totally agree um and when you said that like <clears throat> when i was going through that rough patch i called <clears throat> like everyone was like what you were saying was telling me, oh, just go to rehab, get clean, just stop using drugs, like it's gonna happen like that. And um, I called my brother who was in rehab at the time and he'd just been clean. And I was in Melbourne just at a phone box. And <clears throat> anyway, I spoke to him and I vaguely gave him an idea what's happened. He said to me, um, <clears throat> hey, Muzz, you know, just, um, um, if you're gonna use, just be, just be careful out there, you know? Um, just be very, very careful. And like he didn't say, bro, don't use this and that, you know. Um, he's, he, the, 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 the way he spoke to me that day, I'll never forget because it was from a caring space. And he's like, just be safe out there, watch how much you use. Um, <clears throat> you know, just if you're going to use this, I don't know, it was just, um, it was from an angle that I hadn't been approached with before. And I remember hanging up that phone going, like it actually sunk in, like that he understood. I don't know, it was weird. It's hard to explain. Just you just telling me that story, that's that's setting off an emotional feeling in my mind and my body, and that's that's powerful. Like realizing that there's someone that's not judge judging, someone who's actually just like 
okay, I'm with you. I'm with you right now. And that's what we all need, whether it's an addiction or just life. We need someone to just be like, it's all right, I'm with you. That's what we need. We're the most complex, socially engaging species on this entire planet. And that's what we need. And what I keep thinking, and this is why I'm taking it full circle now, is that I'm sure that there is a need for graffiti. Not, we're not talking street art here. We're talking letter-based graffiti focused services for people who are either recovering from addiction, mental health issues, disabilities, because it's such a powerful vehicle for so much benefit. But anyway, that's a work in pro progress. So we'll see how that goes. So thanks so much for doing this. And you know what? I can't say thanks enough for your honesty because I'm very open and honest and I've probably disclosed more on this podcast today than I have in any of the other ones, but thank you so much for being so honest. And I can't say congratulations to you enough for being in recovery. And I'm so pleased that you, you've recovered because like you said, life is so worth living and just being alive and all the things you've achieved, you know, it's very inspirational. So thanks so much for your time. That's okay. I was glad glad to glad to have a chat on here, you know. And just on another note, like <clears throat> when you give up your addiction, it doesn't mean that you can't keep doing the stuff that you would the stuff that you were doing in addiction in terms of like painting graffiti or whatever you're doing. You know, you can keep doing those things, but you can just keep doing them plain. Do you know and what I mean? And like, it'll be better. It will come out better. Trust me. This is a man yeah. talking with from personal. I have got so much better. I'm not saying I'm really good, but I'll tell you what, I can definitely put out a better piece if I've spent some real quality time learning and not being high all the time and I don't get to the wall and I'm the one who's just off their fucking tits, falling all over the place, not being able to string a bloody sentence together. When I paint sober, it comes out and it's not always perfect but it comes out way better. So <laughs> don't think you need to be high to do well, I think is the, the motto of this or the moral of this story. So again, thanks so much. And I'm just gonna stop recording now. So one second. What an inspirational story from today's guest. Recovery from a hardcore heroin addiction takes some real fucking powerful moves if anyone wants to have any further guidance on this i have been asked on the other episode where it is more about mental health to give some ideas for services the only thing is i know that people are listening from different parts of the world so you know just google addiction recovery addiction rehab reach out to people that you know reach out to people that give a shit about you and aren't judgmental and um you know, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, share with your mates. If you feel like you're getting something out of this, please give us a five-star review in iTunes because that means more people will end up seeing it. And that's it, really. So, yeah, if anyone is suffering addiction at the moment and they feel lonely, you're not alone and people do give a fuck about you. Anyway, peace out. Toy Division.